Welcome to Coaching Kidlet, a podcast about writing and publishing good kidlet. We dig into various aspects of writing craft through a kidlet lens and provide inspiration and clear, actionable items to help writers like you move forward on their kidlet writing journeys. I'm Sharon Skinner, author accelerator, certified book coach, and author of speculative fiction and kidlet, including picture books, middle grade, and young adult. And I'm Christy Arros, author accelerator, certified book coach, and story editor focusing on kidlet, including middle grade and young adult. Hey, Sharon. Hey, Christy. How are you? I'm good. So what are we talking about, Christy? We're talking about scene and summary. So I think this is a great topic. We haven't really dug into this yet, so I'm excited to get going on this. I'm thinking about when writers have finished their drafts and they're going back through and they're doing, as we talked about, they're re-envisioning and their revisions and they're long. Okay. We have a long draft and we have to think about what it is that we can take out. And sometimes, and we talked about this on our re-envisioning episode, like it's hard to let go of some things, but there are some other things that are pretty like in the grand scheme, maybe easier to fix or to cut without actually cutting. And I think that's a place where scene and summary can help you. I agree. And I think that sometimes what happens is that as writers, we get kind of caught up in, we can't see the trees for the forest. And that it's the trees that we're trying to determine which ones can be cut down to create a healthier forest, right? So When you talk about some things are easier to cut than others, most of the time writers don't feel that way. But these are my precious words. I, I spent all this time and energy writing them. They're important to me. They must be important to the story. But they aren't always important to the reader to get the gist of the story. And in fact, they can bog things down and they can drag things on and they can really slow the pace and they can be repetitive. So, you know, we're definitely advocates of the zooming out, which we've talked about multiple times, zooming out and looking at your project from uh, a higher view, not on the page level, but from an outline or whatever it is that you want to call that, your inventory of scenes, your list of scenes, where you can see kind of what is happening in each scene and what the purpose of each scene is. And I think that's where you can start to see, like you just said, that not every scene has a purpose or has multiple scenes serving the same purpose. So then we think, okay, we could just cut that, but maybe not. What do we do if we think we can cut a bunch, but now we've got huge leaps in time or the setting changes too drastically in between those things because we've cut something? Well, it's important to keep in mind that both scene and summary, both showing and telling are critical to a narrative, because if you were showing everything, of course, you'd be showing the character waking up in the morning, brushing their teeth, putting, getting dressed, combing their hair. And we don't need that. We can get shorthand for that. So unless there's something important that's happening in that, where maybe this person is putting on theatrical makeup or they're putting on their superhero mask and that's meaningful, we don't need to see them getting ready to go out for the day, right? And that is where we can use shorthand, what we call telling, 
or summary. We want to skip the boring parts and keep in the interesting parts and the parts that are meaningful. One of the things that happens too is unless you're writing Groundhog Day, you don't need to show us the same stuff over and over. If you show some that somebody has a consistent breakfast uh, ritual and you show it a couple of times, you could summarize it later. Once their breakfast ritual was done, they went on with their day, you know, but you don't have to describe it in detail every time, right? Yes, that's definitely, that's a good example. Or we know everybody sleeps, right? We know everybody takes showers. Everybody goes to the bathroom. Though, unless something is happening out of the ordinary in relation to the story at those times, then we can just assume that at night, people are going to sleep. They're waking up in the morning. They're doing all the things and we're getting on with our day. Yeah. And when you make those jumps in time, like you asked about earlier, as long as you have a road signal, right, for the reader, they'll go with you. They can make these leaps in time and space and setting and character, as long as you give them a road sign. So that's why we either have a chapter break or we have a scene break. It's usually signified by a little glyph or three asterisks or however you do it, just or a white space, just to show there's a shift in character or setting or time. We're making a jump. We're, we're letting you know we're making a leap here. And then the first thing that I always want to make sure my writers do is ground us in wherever we and whenever we are now. So if we've moved into place and time, or if we've moved into another character's perspective, then we need to know that. And we need to know that very quickly within the first sentence or two, we need to know where we are. Grounding the reader is really critical, but you can make all sorts of leaps in time. Otherwise you're showing us everything. And that would be a really long book. And I think that's what we end up with sometimes is really long drafts because we we did explain everything. And like you said earlier, that understanding of it's not wasted. You needed to do it because you needed to tell yourself the story. You needed to put all of those details down so that you can then see what you have. And now we're going to say, I needed to know this as the author so that I could understand what I'm doing here. But now, like, what do I actually have to tell the reader? And it's only enough to keep them from being confused and to keep them interested and to keep them moving along. Right. What they need when they need it. And you are in complete control of that. I think that's something else that writers forget. Like you are the architect. You're the God of the story. You control what information you're giving your reader. And by that same token, your reader is trusting that you're giving them information that's necessary. You don't want them to carry some of these details around with them while they're reading it if they're not actually relevant to what's happening. I think the concept of showing and telling is a little confusing to writers sometimes because we're told to show and not tell. And so we think sometimes that means writing five paragraphs of description on something. And sometimes maybe it, it does, but it's not a bad thing to tell sometimes, even on a right. sense level. Absolutely. And I think we've been getting this message for so long, show, don't tell, show, don't tell, show, don't tell, that it does kind of get in the writer's brain, oh, I have to show everything. And that's just not true. And in fact, there are lots of places where summary or telling is important, especially to keep the pacing of the story. 
you don't want to bog down your story with a lot of detail when you're trying to pick up speed. You want shorter, clippier sentences. You want shorter, clippier dialogue. You want to make sure that the pacing doesn't drag because you're showing too much detail. I mean, if I'm running from a monster, I'm seeing very little detail along the way. If I'm the character, I am only going to notice what I absolutely have to notice in that moment. How far away the monster is from me, what's ahead of me that I might have an obstacle that I have to get around, and whether or not there's monsters coming from the side. Those are probably my primary concerns. Not so much, oh, Mrs. Smith's trash can is overflowing again. Maybe I'm not going to notice that little detail (laughs) in the alley. And maybe you are, but if you are, then it probably should have been established that you are the type of character who does notice those things, even when these things are happening. Well, I will say that if I decide to knock over that trash can to make an obstacle for the monster, then having noticed that it was full or overflowing is a good thing. Or if I want to use the trash can to climb over the wall to get away from the monster or out of the alley, then having it overflowing might be helpful because then I have more of a boost to get over the wall. So if it's important to the scene, yeah, absolutely. If it's important to the character in that moment, that's what we really want to focus on. That's the key to it. And that brings me to what's the point of your scene? Why is it included? Does it have a point? Because If it's important, if there's something important happening in it, then yes, we want you to show it to us because we want to experience the importance of it. We don't just want to be told that it's important. We want to share in that experience and have that journey. And and that's something we talked about when we were talking about emotional truth too, right? Like you're, you're taking something away from the reader sometimes when you tell them how they're supposed to feel or how your character is feeling by saying she's scared, she's tired, she's whatever. Like, what does that mean? That's where we understand we can connect more to the character. And what I do see is oftentimes in earlier drafts, writers will do both. They will show the emotion, show the thing happening. And then like, just to make sure, they also then summarize it at the end and tell you what happened. And then there's the choice of, we can't keep both. So which one do you need the reader to have? I see the same thing, only reversed a lot, especially in fantasy where they tell what's going to happen and then they describe what happens. And that one's an easy one because typically that's a scene that we need to see. So we can just strip out the telling and get rid of it, typically. But again, the scene needs to have a reason to be there. There needs to be something that happens. So if you do have somebody who has a commute, for example, if you have someone who drives to work and they drive the same way every day, we don't need to see them do that every single day. But the day that something happens during that drive, we do want to see. We want to be shown that. We don't want to be told she had a flat tire. We want to maybe see that because that might have some meaning, right? So if it has meaning, if there's a point, we want to show it. So what if my character is waking up in the morning, everything is normal as it is every day, but then mom says something that 
is out of the ordinary. We do with that. And now we're going to school and everything on the way to school is normal. And when I get into class is normal. What do I do with that kind of situation? It, it depends, right? If everything's normal on the walk to school, then I would probably cut that down really, really tight and either or get rid of it and make that jump into school and say, after what mom said, I don't even remember the walk to school, right? Or something that refers to the fact that, okay, we've had this walk to school, we've, we've traveled in time and space, and now I'm sitting in my seat, or I get to school and the bell rings. Boom. You don't necessarily need it. You can have that space break. You can have, uh, or you can have them thinking about it. You could certainly have the character mulling over what happened with mom to some extent, but you don't want to prolong that. And I've seen sometimes where maybe something like that happens and then the character does want to reflect on it and ruminate on it and they do that standing in place. And then they walk to school where let's think about it while we walk to school, like accomplishing two things at the same time. Like she needs to get to school and she can think about it because realistically, if you do reflect on something after it happens, you're not going to stop and then walk to school and not be thinking about it. Like it's still going to be on your mind as you're walking. Right. And you can use the walk to school as a a contrasting setting for what's going on with the character, because now nothing has changed externally, but everything has changed for the character, maybe because of what mom said. Right. That is a really great way to use setting against the emotion of the character. So you're not going to have the characters standing there. You're going to have them doing something. By the same token, this may not be a full-on conversation with mom. This may be a single piece of dialogue. But dialogue also has to have meaning. There has to be a reason for it to be there. It can't just be, hey, Tony. Hey, Bobby. How's it going? I'm great. What are you doing? Oh, I'm just standing here. I mean, That does nothing for the story. It doesn't reveal character. It's not telling, it's not showing us anything about the story at all. So you want to make sure that your dialogue also has a point and that when you're showing it in scene, that it has meaning. Or if Bobby is going to stand there and say, I'm great, but he's slamming the drawer while he's saying, I'm great, then you are showing us the contrast, right? That juxtaposition between the words that are coming out of your mouth and how you're feeling internally. In that case, you're actually making it mean something. It means something because you're showing the contrast of the character's actual mood and what they're saying. That not only tells us a lot about what's going on in the scene, but it also reveals this person's character. This person's angry, but they don't want to talk about it. That's a way to reveal who they are to us in that moment. And I I think we end up with like pseudo details sometimes where it's things we feel like we have to put in there because that's what the reader wants to know everything that is happening, what everything looks like. But if I can take that out and the scene still moves forward and I still know what, what everything I need to know, then you don't need to keep those pseudo details in there. Like, don't tell me what color, and especially me as a, I'm going to say me, especially as a reader, uh, I don't care <laughs> what color the curtains are, what color the walls are, unless I need to notice that for, for later. So the burden you're putting on the reader 
by giving them too many details about things that makes them feel like they need to remember that and hold on to that later. It's a lot for you to keep track of as the writer to make sure that you then put that in later to make it make sense. And it's a lot for the reader of like, wait a minute. Yeah, that goes back to if you put a gun on the wall in the first act, it has to go off in the second act. That's because people's brains have noticed there's a gun on the wall. There must be a purpose for it, right? So if you're establishing all this information for the reader, then their brain is going to go, okay, what's going to happen with this? And what's going to happen with that? And this has to show up again. And if it doesn't, they're going to be like, wait, wait, what happened to the gun or the curtains that happen to be a weird color of mustard? You know, is it, are we not going to see that? Why, why did I remember that? We would notice that if we were watching TV or a movie where the camera is forcing our eye to notice things, right? If the camera lingers on something for an extra second or zooms in on something or aims in a certain way, it's telling us like, hey, pay attention to this. And as writers, that's the same thing that we're doing. The more time we spend on something in our words, the more we're telling the reader that they're supposed to pay attention to that. And if it's just for the purpose of trying to make it feel more vivid or make it feel more realistic or trying to show every second of time that passes, it's just, it's not necessary. And it might be hard to see in your own work. I think a lot of times it's hard to see anymore, but it goes back to that whole, I wrote all these words because they were important to me. I mean, when I was writing Healer's Legacy, I wrote this entire second chapter that ended up on the cutting room floor and parts of chapter three on the cutting room floor. And it was because I was writing my way into the story and getting to know my character. These were things I needed to know, but not that the reader didn't need to know. It slowed down the story. It slowed down the pacing. And some of it confusing because I was not doing a really good job of describing what was in my head. But it took a while for me to realize I had to have a beta reader tell me, I'm confused here. Why are you telling me this? And it finally hit me that, oh, that was for me. That wasn't for you. And, and I've seen writers who get worried about that, about cutting those things, because then they're afraid that they've taken out too much and the reader can no longer follow what's happening. But I think that, again, with a beta reader or a trusted critique partner or a coach or something can tell you, hey, this is the part where I was confused. And then you can just go back. And if you need to add another detail or two to make it make more sense. I don't know. I feel well, like I, I would err more on the side of cutting than than not. <laughs> and I think it's important to the reader. You know, you need to trust your reader that they're going to get it, right? And as long as the information is there, they will be able to follow along. As long as you ground them in the scene, give them enough information that they can get to the next scene and the next scene and the next scene as you go along. So giving it to them when and as they need it, and however much of the information that they need is, it's a kind of a tightrope that you're walking. And a lot of times we do want to put in all this extra information because we don't want them to misconstrue or miss the intent, but you got to trust your reader. I think that especially comes up because we're talking about writing for younger readers. And as adults, we worry that maybe the child reader won't be able to follow us, but you're right. We have to trust them. And if we're giving them the right things in the right way and making sure that the stuff that we do tell them serves more than one purpose so that it has more meaning, then they can follow along. 
so when you talk about it serving more than one purpose, really what we're talking about is that it drives the story along. It, it reveals character. It, it has a point. All Everything that you put down, all the words on the page need to be lifting some kind of weight. They need to be carrying the story in some way, shape, or And that goes back to character lens and seeing through the character's eyes and what is important to that character in that moment. Because yeah, sometimes in the movies, you'll see a couple of swordsmen and they're having a sword fight and they're swinging at each other. And then they're having this conversation at the same time. Oh, that's really good form. Well, I like your style. That's not how people really fight because right now I'm swinging a sword and I'm keeping my breath and I'm kind of watching you and I'm trying to focus on what's going on. And the only kind of dialogue that I'm probably going to have with you is to say something to try and throw you off your game. We're not going to have this long drawn out conversation. We're not going to pause between swinging at each other to have a paragraph of dialogue between us. That's got to keep the pace going. You've got to keep the energy up. You're having a sword fight, right? The other thing is, is that what are your characters paying attention to in that moment, whether it's a sword fight or that drive to work? If that drive to work is important, it's because they must be seeing something along the way or experiencing something along the way that's important. So let's talk more about that, about character perspective and how that informs us of what kind of details we should be including in a scene. And that is probably a little more difficult in that first draft because you are still figuring out for yourself, right? Exactly who that character is. So maybe you are putting more, like we've said, you're putting more on the page because you needed to tell it to yourself. But then once you really have a good grasp of who your character is and the way that they see the world, you want to, this is your chance through your descriptions to show us the world that your character sees. You and I can exist in this room together at the same time, but we exist in two different rooms because you see one room and I see a different one. So if I'm reading about Sharon, I want to know what Sharon notices. And, and that's going to help me understand what kind of person Sharon is. And Christy's probably not noticing anything because she does. But it also informs us as to not only what kind of a person Sharon is or who that character is, but how they're feeling at the moment. Because everything we see and everything we experience is colored by our emotional lens as well. So I always give this example when I'm teaching classes about this, when I'm talking about character lens and setting. And it's this example of, I'm a collector. I have all kinds of collectibles, Lord of the Rings. My husband likes Godzilla. My living room is shelves of collectibles. And on a good day, when Sharon goes out into the living room, I see my collectibles. They make me happy. I see the Godzilla and the Mecha Godzilla. And the Mecha Godzilla is wearing the finger puppet of Godzilla and mocking him. And it's pretty funny. And it's like, it fills my soul because this is him in the world and it's reflected back at me. And the sun comes in the window and I'm a happy person, right? And I like this. And these are the, the little details I'm looking at. On a bad day, when I'm in a grumpy mood or a sour mood and I walk out into the living room, what am I going to see? I see all the stuff I have and the dust that's on it because I hate to dust and it's hard to dust all that stuff. And the sun coming in through the window, I can see the cat hair filtering in through that ray of sunlight. So it's no longer a happy place for me. So not only does 
what I see show you something about who I am as a character, but the emotional lens through which I'm seeing it and viewing it and the details that I'm focusing on as that character in that moment matter. Absolutely. And that, that reminds me of a, of an, of an, also a real life example. My husband and I had gone to vote at our town hall for a budget and it was still kind of COVID-y and I wasn't feeling well that day and I had my mask on. And whenever I had my mask on, it just like brings me more into myself. Like I feel very claustrophobic. So we go in, I'm just like, where do I go? What do I have to sign? How am I doing this? And get me the heck out of here because I want to take this mask off. And we get outside and my husband's like, oh, did you see so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so is there? And I'm like, I saw absolutely nothing. <laughs> like I saw, here's where I stand. Here's where I sign. How many people voted? Because I always check that and then leaving. And that's it. Whereas another time I would have noticed, like you said, I would have noticed all of the people who were there because I mean, you're in your town. You can't go anywhere without seeing somebody. <laughs> well, know. and also, also the other character in the room noticed something different than what you noticed. And that's another thing that when we are in character perspective, when we're in a specific viewpoint character, we want to focus on what they're noticing. And if you need the other character to notice something different, you could put that in dialogue. Hey, did you see so-and-so? No, I'm head down. I'm over here. I'm not paying attention to that. I have to be focused on this over here. And that's a really good way to show who these people are without telling us a thing. Really? Yeah. It's all about showing. Ask yourself, does this detail match what my character's personality, their traits, their interests, their state of mind, if that's something that they would notice, let us know. If it's not, then the room can be full of many things. And if they don't notice any of it, except that fly on the wall, then only tell us about the fly on the wall. And then also the emotion that's being conveyed. If that's not consistent with how that character is feeling right now, then don't tell us. If it's a very anxious moment, maybe they're talking really fast and they are saying a lot of words, but maybe they're saying absolutely nothing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great analogy right there. Great description. Yeah, I think that what happens is that as writers, especially visual writers, like I'm a pretty much a visual writer. So I'm seeing the scene when I write it. And most of my readers who are my ideal readers, they see it in their heads like a movie when they read my work. And that's cool. I love that. That's my whole point. That's my purpose. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm also working very hard as a writer to make the words disappear off the page so that experience becomes even more enhanced. So when I say make the words disappear off the page, I don't mean that I'm a sparse writer necessarily. I do write setting. I do write dialogue. I write action. But I try to do it in a way that makes it happen in the reader's head. So I definitely want to make sure that I'm not overburdening them with too much detail at any given moment, unless that's what is going to be noticed by the character. I talk about it is glimpses and focus. So if you're running from the monster, you're only getting glimpses of the scenery, right? There's only certain things that you're probably gonna notice. But if you are slowed down just walking through the alley, probably gonna notice everything, especially on a dark night because you're paying attention to everything, every shadow, every little thing. As soon as the monster starts chasing you, your vision 
gets a little bit narrowed and you're focusing on what are the things that are going to save me? What are the things that are going to kill me? Right. But that also is how you're controlling the pacing of the scene, right? The, those glimpses speeds up that scene and it heightens the tension for us. The casual stroll down the alley, looking at everything slows down time and, and you're giving us more where we have to notice those that takes time. But you can still keep the tension lifted because sometimes when you want to raise tension and suspense, you do it by slowing things down and that anticipation and that worry and all of that can increase, right? So that's a really good way to make sure that tension is raised until the monster comes in and then the adrenaline ramps up and now we're on a chase and we can really, really make it exciting. So speaking of holding tension in a scene, have you noticed when uh, a writer is building a scene and we've got tension and then all of a sudden they're thinking about something that takes up a lot of space or they're flashing back to something and how that can break the tension sometimes unintentionally when you, because you you've pulled the reader out yeah you never want to pull the reader out of your story completely there are ways to do flashbacks and ways to do thoughts and interiority but you can also express the interiority or the emotion of the character just by the nuance of the word choices that you're making there's a very big difference between me looking out the window at somebody spinning in the rain thinking what a fool that person is and looking out there going oh that person's dancing in the rain I want to go join them so look at that amazing dancer in the rain it's lovely versus look at that fool flopping around in the rain I mean just the change in the words that I'm using to describe them shows you a very big difference between the two. So you don't even have to get all that much inside their brains. Well, in YA, I think we get a lot more up in the brain and the thinking and the worry and all of that than we do in some other category, but still there are ways to show it. You don't necessarily have to tell us. And speaking of interiority, I think that's another place you might not be that writer that uses a lot of description about setting but you do linger in your character's head maybe for a long time and I'm going to forget who it was that said this at a workshop but I try and get my writers to look at it in real time if you say a sentence to me and I don't even react to you and now I'm just in my head unless you're going to call me out on me zoning out and not responding to you like how much can happen from moment to moment before the reader even forgets what was happening before you started your inner monologue there forever. Yeah, it's true. Again, it's a tightrope. It's a balancing act. You you have to figure out what you need to put in and what you need to leave out in order to ensure that the reader is engaged, that things are accessible, that they're getting the information they need as they need it, when they need it, that they're not being bogged down by too much detail. I know it's a lot to to think about, but when you're in revision, this is the time to think about it. This is the time to decide what details to leave in, how to manage your pacing, how to keep your conflict up, what dialogue is important, and how to nuance your language to make sure that it is also 
holding up the theme and the mood and the tonality of your work or that scene at least. And that's not necessarily one, something that you can do from the beginning as a writer that it comes with experience. And the more uh, that you know how to write, the better you can do these things off the bat. And two, not all in one pass. This might take multiple revisions of I'm just going to go through this and I'm going to worry about what emotions I have on the page. Do I have too much of this? Mm -hmm. So when, when I was copy editing and I know you, you've done this in the past too, I didn't do the whole thing in one shot. I would look through a whole, like I'm only looking for this one thing and then go through the whole thing, looking for that one thing. Now I'm going to only do this thing and go through. And that's how you make sure that one, you're being consistent if you are making changes and that you're catching all of those things. We can only focus on so many things at a time. So this isn't even a, oh, I should be able to do this off the bat. Uh, something's wrong with me. No, it's it's going to take some time. And here's a tip that a few of my writers have brought to me recently. My group is apparently Word has gotten a lot better with this, with the sound of the robot voice, but having like Microsoft Word read you your story. I mean, we should all read things aloud to hear how they are, but Maybe you don't want to read your whole novel aloud, but listening to it, having something read it to you, you really start to notice where you're repetitive or, you know what, make a podcast and edit yourself and see how many times you say, um, like, so, right. Well, that's the reason that I, I tell my writers all the time, get rid of these dialogue tags as much as you possibly can. And it's because, yes, they, they tend to disappear on the page. But when you listen to an audiobook and everybody is setting stuff, she said, he said, he said, she said, it starts to stand out just like um, um, or, you know, or like it starts to stand out in the brain because we keep hearing it repetitively over and over. And so I recommend my writers think about, can you cut that and give us an action tag so that we know who's speaking without having to say, they said, they said, they said, so that once your book's an audio book, we don't have to worry about hearing that over and over and over. It'll be better on the, the reader or listener's ear. Yeah. And especially with kids' books, I mean, you want your book to be a read aloud. You want someone to be able to listen to your story over and over again. But there, there's just like anything, many ways to do things. And I think these are just some things that we do notice coming up often in the writers that we work with. And we've done it ourselves. We'll continue to do it ourselves in our first drafts. It's not, I don't think something that you necessarily master and then aren't going to do the next time you sit down to write a book. It's always going to be a balancing act. Oh yeah. I, I think of dialogue tags in a first draft or an early draft as placeholders for something later. I don't worry about them when I'm drafting because I know that writing is rewriting. I'm going to revise this thing anyway. So I want the story to flow. I want to keep getting it out on the page so that I do have something to revise. So we're not saying you have to know all this and do all this ahead of time. What we are saying though, is the more that you do this with the work that you do and the revisions that you do with your stories, the actual more it will get inside your head and the less of this kind of revising that will be required later on. The more you do this, the better you get at it. And it actually will improve your drafting as well. That doesn't mean we still don't do it. 
It doesn't mean that I don't have placeholders for all kinds of stuff in my write, writing in my early drafts, but it does mean that I have less of that than I had five, 10 years ago when I was writing earlier. And I think all of us have different things too. You know, like I'm not a huge description per person, but I am a huge interiority person. So I will have a lot of rambling in my characters' heads without necessarily describing the things around them. And maybe other writers don't do any of that. And all they do is the description. And that's something that they have to take out these and add this in, in the, the revision. Yeah. And we have our favorite actions and we have our favorite things that we use. But again, those become placeholders for better stuff later. So Sharon, if you had to give our listeners an action item around this topic, what would you suggest? Well, I, I'm going to recommend a book this time. And the book that I'm going to recommend is called Showing and Telling, Learn How to Show and When to Tell for Powerful and Balanced Writing by Lori Alberts. This is a nice craft uh, writing book that will help you to figure out when to use scene and when to summarize, because basically that's showing and telling, that's what it is, scene and summary, which is what we've been talking about today. So this is a solid craft book. That is a great one. Great choice. I'm going to bounce off of something that you said earlier and suggest that maybe you think about a few of the, the big emotions that your character is going to have in the story and describe a setting, maybe their bedroom. What does their bedroom look like when they come in happy? What does their bedroom look like when they come in angry or sad or tired or distracted? And try and write it a couple of times and see what different details you notice that you mentioned. And then how can you use those, especially in a setting that comes up a few times in your story? How can you reveal more to us each time you bring us into that room based on what's happening with the character? So thank you so much, everybody, for being with us here today. And we hope that we will, well, we won't know, but we hope you'll listen to us next month. <laughs> Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Coaching Kidlet, a writing and book coaching podcast for writers who want to level up their Kidlet writing game. For more about us and to discover what a book coach can do for you, check out coachingkidlet.com and follow us on social media.